If you have a copy of the confession this morning, if you'll turn over to chapter 27, we're in paragraph 2. If you don't have a copy of one, there are a number of them in the entryway there, so help yourself to those. And so we're going to be looking this morning at paragraph 2 of the chapter dealing with the communion of the saints. Now we read in Acts chapter 2 about the first century church, or sometimes what we refer to as the early church. And with the early church, we get a glimpse or a picture of what life in church was like in those days. Uh, We often hear people say what we really need is a, a revolution back to the first century church, back to how the first century church used to do things. And I think many people say that, but I'm not sure they fully comprehend uh, the differences. There were some differences. Uh, The first century church was marked by its fellowship. Of course, that was not the primary thing, but it was marked by its uh, adherence to sound doctrine. It was marked by its adherence to God's will and God's purposes and God's plan. Uh, But it was also marked by the reality of our obligations as a church. Uh, Sadly, today, many people consider church as something that I can choose for myself or I can choose to worship God in my own way. But even as we learned in chapter 26, church membership is not an option. It is an obligation, Uh, not so that it becomes a burden. Church membership is not a burden. Uh, Those who are members of a sound church find church membership a glorious privilege. And so there's no doubt that the church in the first century, the early church, certainly knew what this fellowship around sound doctrine and around the things of God certainly was. Look with me at paragraph two. It says, saints by profession are bound to maintain a holy fellowship and communion in the worship of God and in performing such other spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification as also in relieving each other in outward things according to their several abilities and necessities, which communion, according to the rule of the gospel, though especially to be exercised by them in the relation wherein they stand, whether in families or churches, yet as God offers opportunity, is to be extended to all the household of faith, even all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus." Nevertheless, their communion one with another as saints doth not take away or infringe the title or propriety which each man hath in his goods and possessions. Over the last few weeks, I've been trying to mark some expressions in the paragraph that will kind of give us uh, kind of the natural heading or the natural outlines in this paragraph. And so some of those expressions today are in the first line, we see saints by profession. We see holy fellowship and communion. Second line, we see spiritual services as tend to their mutual edification. And then maybe third to the last line, we see even all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. So we are dealing with a very special organization. We are dealing with that which the Lord calls his church. We are not dealing with a country club. We are not dealing with a place to have our social needs met. We are not dealing with a place that is just something we can take pride in saying, I belong to. Now, we spent an entire month and a half in chapter 26 of the confession dealing with the church. Uh, So chapter 27 is a continuation of that in many ways. But what really sets this paragraph and sets it in the right direction is those first three words of the paragraph. Saints by 
profession. Saints by profession. Now that refers to anyone or those who claim to be believers. So today, if you claim to be a believer, you are a saint by profession. You claim that. You claim that that is part of who you are. You are, in fact, a believer in Christ. But the saints by profession and those who are believers refer to what we've talked about primarily, to the visible saints uh, that we see in our local churches. And that's what chapter 26 deals primarily with. Although we do know the invisible church is seen there, and we see the church being manifested, of course, in the local congregations. But saints by profession really needs to be honed in on the reality that what this does is it refers to those who are believers according to man's understanding. So in other words, if a saint, a person proclaims to be a believer in Christ, according to my understanding, I believe that to be so. Now we all today are by understanding uh, claiming to be saints by profession. Now you might be here today and maybe you don't claim that. But if you claim to be a believer, you are a saint by profession. Now, not the definition that the Catholic Church uses of a saint. A saint is a positional setting apart. You are in God. You are in Christ. You are truly a saint. Doesn't mean you're perfect in behavior because we do know that's not the case. None of us are perfect in behavior. But the saint by profession really sets off this paragraph because if you claim to be a believer, then everything that follows applies to you. So if you claim Christ then this entire paragraph applies to you. These are those things in which the first century church, the early church, which some churches are crying and praying for God to return us to a first century church mentality. Well, this is part of the first century church mentality is holy fellowship. Now, fellowship is an interesting word because we use it to cover a lot of different activities. We use it to cover a lot of different events. Fellowship, remember, biblically speaking, true biblical fellowship is the, the community that we have with other believers, which is for the mutual edification. Not just the edification of speaking words of self-motivation, but speaking edifying words of the fellowship in which we share, our common grace that we have in Christ, our common doctrine we have in Christ. We edify one another about those things. Now, no doubt, we certainly help each other. We encourage others. But it's, again, it's according to our understanding. Now, a person can be a saint by profession and not be a saint in their heart. There are many professing churchgoers. There are many people who claim to be Christ who are not. So the confession writers are very careful to be sure that if you are a saint by profession, then here's the fruit that should follow. So if your claim to being a believer is true, then passages like Acts chapter number 2, verses 41 through 47, which we read, and then even our Lord's words in John 13, verse 34 and 35, demonstrate what was marked, what marked the first century church. Their characteristics. So what we understand here is that the point is that everyone who professes to be a believer is obligated to maintain holy fellowship and communion with God's people for the worship of God. I've heard it many times. I don't have to go to the church services to be a believer. 
No, you do not, but why would you not want to be? It's the flimsiest excuse in human history. I'm a believer, but I don't want anything to do with corporate worship. I don't want anything to do with going to the house of God. I don't want anything to do. I'm just going to sit at home and I'm going to do it myself. See, there should be a desire for holy fellowship. There should be a desire to actually look forward to the day when the church assembles and the church gathers. Whether that's once or twice a week, or if we truly want the early church every day of the week. Every day of the week, that church met for some purpose, not necessarily for services every day, but could you imagine our church if we had a schedule of Sunday to Sunday? Every day, the church gathered. See, people want, they want the result that the first century church was seen, where the Bible says that the Lord added unto the church, but we don't, we somehow ignore the fellowship, we ignore the corporate worship of God. Church attendance in our country over the last three years, two years especially, is at all-time lows. You know what COVID did? You know what COVID did? It did a lot of purging. It did a lot of purging, and if I can say this, it made a lot of people lazy. You know what? I like live streaming all the time. It has its place. We do it. You see me fight with this camera every single week, and every week I'm like, I'm ready to throw this thing out. But it has a value, but it's not a replacement for the corporate worship. And we got lazy during COVID. We decided we liked going to church in our pajamas. We liked just sitting there and having casual church. But what you're losing sight of is the beauty of corporate worship and fellowship. It, you're not going to get that through a camera. Now, sometimes God does lay us up. Sometimes we are hindered from coming to church. That's where live streaming and technology comes in. I'm thankful for it. But it's not a replacement. Holy fellowship is intended for the gathering of God's people for the mutual edification is what the paragraph says. Now remember, we dealt last week with the, our union with Christ and how we are united to Christ over the last couple weeks. The confession now takes us from that truth of our union with Christ and now puts it right where we are to talk about our communion with each other. So what can we say? Our union with Christ is the foundation of a holy fellowship. The only reason we can fellowship properly together is because of our union with Christ. There is no fellowship with light and dark. So that's why they said saints who profess or saints by profession. Sadly, within any local church, and I think this is true, maybe I'm overstepping here, but within any church, there is somebody who may be there by profession, but they are truly not in the family of God. So there's an explanation of this fellowship. So what did Jesus call his disciples to in John 13, 34, and 35? Well, he called them to love. And he says, a new commandment I give unto you. And of course, this is right after he had washed the disciples' feet. There are many events that had take place in that particular passage. And he begins talking about his own glorification. He begins talking about his own. He's giving those hints and he's going to go away. And he says, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. A commandment is exactly as it sounds, a commandment. It's not, I'm going to consider, Lord, your words and decide whether or not it, love is right for me. No, he says, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. 
He wasn't just talking to those disciples who were seated there. Because we know that in one of those individuals who was a part of that 12 was a non-believer who was a saint by profession only. That was Judas Iscariot. But by profession, you're to love one another. If you claim to be a believer today, you have an obligation to love other brothers and sisters in Christ. How do we love them? As I have loved you. Now that's a perfect love. Christ's love for us is a perfect love. It's not marred by sin. It's not marred by any uh, preconceived notions. It's not marred by our preferences towards people. But rather, it is his love that is the pattern. That ye also love one another. And then he says, here's what it does. By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples if ye have love for one to another. Not just other brothers and sisters in Christ will know, but all people will know that you are one of mine by your love for one another. So he calls upon us to love each other and desires that love should be the mark that distinguishes us as believers. Now we understand and the Bible teaches us that the Spirit also gives us within a fellowship of people, we go back to Acts 2, we are given gifts to edify one another. We are given the abilities and the blessings to be able to not only love each other as Christ commanded, but to serve each other. Notice verse 41 back in our text in Acts 2 says, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Those who were converted, they were baptized. Same day, they were added unto them 3,000 souls. Upon their conversion, upon their baptism, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. This was not doorstep conversion where they handed them a ticket to heaven and said, now you are good, go do whatever you were doing, and I'll see you in heaven. No, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Immediately, they entered into the fellowship of that church. They entered into the fellowship in doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. They became one with that congregation. So what we do when we enter into a fellowship, we explain this holy fellowship, really is the heading, first heading here, is we display our love to each other in obedience to Christ's command. But we love each other also in Christ's power. We love each other only because of the Spirit which dwells in us. The love and the holy fellowship among believers is not human love. It is not that human, emotional, sappy love that wavers and changes like the seasons. It is a Spirit-given power to love each other even in spite of the issues. Anywhere you have a group of people, you're going to have disagreements, you're going to have issues, and wherever there's people, you're going to have problems. I don't trademark that saying, where there are people, there are problems. That's reality. But imagine how quickly people remain in a family, their earthly family, but how quickly they bolt a fellowship when something goes wrong. You see, if you can bolt a fellowship without really being burdened by the reality of what does it mean to leave a holy fellowship of people, I would have to ask you, did you really love the brethren like the Bible tells us to love? You should not be able to leave a congregation easily. 
Now, there are times that we, you need to. There are times when the doctrine goes awry. There's times when heresy comes in and you have no other choice but to leave. But it should not be like flipping a switch and saying, well, I've, I've squeezed all I can squeeze out of that church and I'm on to the next one. Imagine the things we endure in our own families. And we wouldn't think about leaving our families. But when it happens in church, one little misstep and one little disagreement and we say, that church isn't for me. That's a problem. And it's not just congregants. It's not just membership. It's also pastors. Pastors get a few unruly sheep, and he's an unruly sheep himself. And he says, you know what? I don't want any part of this congregation, so I'm just going to move on to the next pasture. If he can easily leave a congregation without his heart breaking over that, even a congregation that goes wrong... Did he have the right love for that congregation? I would say no. Now, this, sometimes they do leave, but it should not be easy to leave a fellowship. So we display the love of Christ, and we complete that love or perform that love in the power of the Spirit. Christ's love has been put into our hearts, and we're not supposed to hold that to ourselves and sit by ourselves at home and say, I'm so glad I love Jesus. I'm so glad I love God. I'll just keep that to myself. No holy fellowship, and the Bible says, you should be using that to edify other people with it. I worship God on my fishing boat in the lake. You might, but you're in disobedience to the command to assemble. You're in disobedience of, you're not in holy fellowship. You know, those who willfully say, I'm not going to attend church, but I'll be with you in spirit. <laughs> no, you're not. It's the oldest Christian cliche. Now, I'm not talking about people that are sick, but people who say, I just, the local church isn't for me, but I'm with you in spirit. That's not part of the fellowship. Holy fellowship actually requires contact. It actually requires being together. It, it is truly the biblical principle of rejoicing with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We display this, and the Bible even tells us in one of the classic passages is in 1 John about this love, 1 John 3, verse 14. He says, we know that we've passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. You know, people often ask me, it comes up a lot about their assurance. And this is actually one of the, the clearest tests of whether or not you're a believer or not. Do you love the brethren? If you tell me you love Jesus, but I hate Christians, you're not one of the brethren. You're just not. That's not my words, that's God's word. Don't tell me you love God. But I can't stand being around those, I can't stand being around those people down at that church on I can't stand those people at Petrie Road. You see, the reality is, is we don't have hate for the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in, in deed and in truth. 
in deed and in truth. And hereby we know that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemn us, God is greater than our heart and knoweth all things. Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he, be, he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the Spirit which he hath given us. So Christians should act like brothers and sisters because you are. We are brothers and sisters. Not by blood or by physical earthly adoption, but we're brothers and sisters. That's why it's highly appropriate to call one another brother or sister. It's, it is a, that is a term of love, is what that is. If, for example, I, I call someone brother, I'm, 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 I'm announcing our fellowship. I'm announcing our fellowship together, that we are in Christ together. So there is this reality here. Now, some of the ways in which this was being carried out, if you go back to our text in Acts chapter number 2, you'll notice that after they continued in fellowship, there's this word called fear. Fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Fear, there's this reverential awe. There were signs and wonders that was, that was confirming to that church that what they were doing was of God, that this was proper doctrine. This was acceptable. And as a result, it says in verse 44, and all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Now, let me just put your mind at ease. I'm not asking you to sell everything that you have and put it into our bank account. (laughs) That's not exactly what's being said here. What is being said is that their attitude and their humility and their fellowship was such that they were ready and willing to do whatever they needed to do to love and serve one another. They were willing to make a sacrifice. Parents, you know exactly what I'm talking about. If your child is in need, and the need, it does not matter what that need is, you parents will agree with me that there is no limit to what you will do for your child. You'll give your life for your child. You might even say the same thing about your spouse. I hope you can say that. There is such a willful a willingness to sacrifice. He's talking about more of the heart attitude that they don't view this as something separate, but they view this as something that we are willing and ready to help one another. That should be our holy fellowship. What are we motivated by? By somebody congratulating us for giving sacrificially? No, we're motivated by the brotherly love we are commanded to love one another by Christ Himself. We don't do things to get a pat on the back or to have somebody notice. If I give my life for my child, I don't have any concern at all that you took notice. I gave my life for my child because that's what they meant to me. Not so you'll be impressed. Not that someone will build a statue. Here lies a person who gave their life for their child. No, I gave that out of a love for my child. 
Do you know healthy, properly functioning churches, that's how it's supposed to be? And do you realize that's the mark, the distinguishing mark that's missing in most churches is there's not really holy fellowship and there's not really brotherly love in Christ. So there is this very clear explanation of what it is. Second heading is what's the obligation? What is the obligation? Well, we've already kind of looked at this, but you'll notice that as the obligation of holy fellowship, of course, it's a privilege, but John later tells us in 1 John 4, verses 10 through 12, he says, herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. So there is this obligation, right, to love one another sacrificially, even to the point of death. Now again, these are strong words. We tend to divide our loyalties by level of importance and by structure. And I think if we're all honest with one another today, all of us most likely would put our immediate family above our church family. That's just our nature. We would say that my physical, earthly family, no matter who they are, no matter what they've done, are much higher than the fellowship of other believers. That's our human nature. But do you realize that what the church, the first century church, that everybody is crying for God to revive them, to bring this back into the... See, they want the blessings of 3,000 souls being added to their roles, but they don't want to follow the command to love each other. And then they wonder why there's such dissension and such division. It's a command. The obligation is to love one another sacrificially. Now, the word that's used there um, in verse 11, if beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Ought seems like a, a very generic, organic term. It doesn't seem like a word that has a lot of great depth to it. It's just, it almost sounds like, is that proper English? You ought. But it's actually the verb. This is fascinating to me. It's actually the verb, which means to owe, to be in debt, to be bound by oath, to be obligated, must. Now, you might have a different translation that doesn't even use the word ought. But this is not something that's, hey, take this into consideration. He said, you're to love one another as if you are in debt to one another, as if you are obligated to one another. There is an obligation of this holy fellowship and this obligation to love one another. We are obligated and we owe it to God to love his children. God created man in his image. We're to love God's children. We're to love God's creation. Those who profess faith in Christ have the obligation towards Christ and one another to love each other. Now you'll notice back in our text in Acts 2, it says that not only did they sell their possessions, they continuing daily with one accord in the temple. People have often said you can continue in one accord and daily and not see each other. This tells us that they were actually going to the temple daily and they were in one accord. 
They had a common heart. They had a unity. They came together. They had regular fellowship one with another. But they didn't have fellowship that was just based on social gatherings. They were performing spiritual services to each other. I not only have an obligation as a pastor to stand up and preach to you the whole counsel of God, I also have the same obligation to love you as Christ loved and loved us sacrificially. It's not, here's what the pastor and elders say. Now, congregation, you do this. It's every person who has a profession of faith. If you are a saint by profession, you have an obligation to love one another to have regular fellowship. Now again, fellowship has a whole different word today. Fellowship is used to define anything where people are gathered. Sometimes fellowship is used that if there's just Christians there, even though nothing Christian's going on, we're still in fellowship. Again, doesn't mean, for example, doesn't mean that a group of people can't get together and go to an, from a church and go to an event that's not quote-unquote Christian-oriented, if you will. It doesn't have to be a worship service or a church service. Christians can get together, and they can go have ice cream. They can go to a ball game together. They can go have coffee together. Not that these things can't happen. But folks, those are not the most important meetings of a church. The most important meetings are when that church gathers all together and there's mutual edification of each other and reminders to how they can trust God. They can weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, those who are struggling, and those maybe who are saying, listen, God has been so faithful to me this week. I want you to know about God's faithfulness. So it's not just attending church, but if you notice and go on, they also provided for the physical needs of the families. They took care of those needs that they knew of. Now again, our help, our physical help of one another, meeting the physical needs of others, it depends on our ability to do. Not everybody has the resources to be able to give to every physical temporal need that is there. Now the reason I say that is because I've watched this for too long where people are forced into feeling guilty that if I don't give a certain amount, then I'm somehow less, I don't love the church as much. Where a pastor stands up and says, would you sacrificially give every one of you, would you sacrificially, I'm just gonna throw a number out there, would all of you pray that God will make you give $1,000? And he'll say $1,000 exactly. And the, the person who couldn't even fathom $1,000 is made to feel so small. It's according to your ability and according to your ability to give, not trying to keep up with the person who sits across the row from you. This fellowship, just like in our families, every family member is different. Have more than one child and you'll see two different children. Have more than two children, have three, you'll see three different children. Have four, you'll see four different children. You will see differences in all of them. You'll see different gifts. You'll see different abilities. And just like in a church, God did not make us all exactly the same. So if somebody isn't, quote unquote, using the gift that you've been given the same way you are, don't look down your pious, pharisaical nose and say, why aren't you doing what I'm doing? And that's what it is. Why aren't you giving a thousand dollars? Pastor said, give a thousand. You're never going to hear me say, give any dollar amount. 
You're going to hear me say, have a heart that's willing to sacrifice and give in a time of need and give as God gives you the ability to give. This church from day one relies on whatever God puts in your heart to give and to do. You've never, ever, ever been given a dollar figure. You've never been given this is what you must do. This has been according to your ability to give. And God wonderfully takes care of us. But this fellowship is not just saying I love you. It's a fellowship that actually expresses it by meeting those needs. The confession does make a very important qualification in the last part of this. So not only do we give according to the abilities and necessities, which communion according to the rule of the gospel, though especially be exercised by them in the relation wherein they stand, whether in families or churches, yet as God offers opportunity, is to be extended to all the household of faith. Our giving might be outside of this local fellowship. We might have another believer who isn't a part of our church, who is in need. And if God gives you the ability to give, then give. Read about the accounts in Corinthians when Paul talks about those who gave out of their poverty to help the church in Macedonia, to help those churches and help those people. He says they gave of themselves first. Then they gave out of their poverty. Again, there's no guilt in that. I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm just telling you that's the heart of sacrifice. Again, is there a limit? Is there a limit of what I would do for my daughters and my wife? No. There isn't. But do we have that same attitude towards brethren? Well, they're not my, they're not my real family. You realize that some people, the church that they have is the only real family they have, although they have hundreds of blood-related relatives? See, being related by blood doesn't mean the closeness is the same. There's a special privilege about the fellowship that takes place in a church. And that fellowship is something that you cannot manufacture. You cannot program it. And you can't give people a list of things. If you do this, this, and this, you're going to have a beautiful fellowship. But God does say, here's what the key is. You love one another. As I have loved you, love one another. And you begin to see that. See, the confession does make this very clear statement. And this is why I mentioned to you before about he's not telling us that the only way you love each other is if you empty your bank accounts like the prosperity uh, people would tell you. The people that come on television and say, hey, send me $10,000 and you're going to triple that money. I hope you've never sent anything to any of those crazies. The reality is, as he says, it's the heart, it's the attitude. But he says very clearly, he says, it's to be extended to all the household of faith, even all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Nevertheless, their communion one with another as saints does not take away or infringe the title or property or propriety which each man hath in his goods and his possessions. They were very clear to say, this does not mean you, do, you have no right to private property. Folks, that, that ends up being, that, that borders, if not, into a cult by that point, okay? That's cultic. If you start saying, listen, you need to give up everything you have, and I want you to drive down to this address. I want you to come through this gate. It's got a nice big fence around it. You come on in there, and you become part of this compound, and we all have all things in common. You'd be surprised. Maybe people fall for this. He's not saying that at all. 
What the book of Acts is saying is that they, did, they, were, they were concerned about one another. They were concerned about what each other had, their needs. But he does not say that all private property and possessions are to be given up. I mean, the Bible tells us that stealing is a sin, so that implies ownership of something. Property, possessions, actually belong to people. Uh, private ownership, actually back in Acts chapter number 5 with the account of, of Sapphira, uh, you'll recall that entire, that, if you want to look at that quickly, um, there's a verse, Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. It talks about they had personal property. While it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. The whole, the whole point of that story was you didn't have to give it, but instead you lied about it. Private ownership is certainly endorsed and is proper. All giving in a holy fellowship should be voluntary. And as 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 and 7 teach us, it should be cheerful. God loves a cheerful giver. We're just not giving it grudgingly. So the final heading is a quick one and we'll be, we'll be finished. Is the demonstration of holy fellowship. Christian love is not something which the Lord demonstrated towards us and just said, here's what I've done. But he's also called us to demonstrate it, his love to other people and to each other. It's not something we have an option to choose to take it or leave it. Jesus himself said, if you, if you are one of mine, a new commandment I give to you, love one another. We don't just love when it's comfortable. We don't just love when it's convenient. We don't just love when people are lovable. And again, I say this and I'm not trying to be reverent and smart, but we are not as lovable as we think we are. When you look and you say, why doesn't everybody love me? What's there not to love? You're not as lovable as you think, and neither am I. We just have a very high opinion of ourselves and we think, look, why would anybody not want to be, why would they not love me and want to spend time with me and fellowship with me? Because the reality is, is we're not loving each other based upon those things. We're loving each other based upon the power of the Spirit. This type of love is demonstrated to all the saints, especially those of our own congregation, which is called a holy fellowship. It is what we are here. So let me conclude by a verse we already, I think we may have read this, but 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and every one that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Let us love one another. Why? Because love is of God. Well, let's stop there for this morning. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll be dismissed in prayer. And again, I hope this will be a, a help to you today. I hope it'll be a great lesson to us. And I hope we'll understand what this holy fellowship really is all about. Let's pray together.